This podcast is supported by Hanover Messe, your meeting place for the industrial community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber. Once a month, we introduce you to an industrial AI startup. In this episode, we introduce Phantasma from Berlin. The engineers focus on a reinforcement learning approach for the shop floor. Enjoy listening. My guest is Rama Nandundaya. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Robert. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be with you on the podcast. I hope I have pronounced your name correctly, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You're one of the few ones who got it perfectly well. You are the founder of Phantasma Labs. Rama, please introduce yourself briefly to the listeners and explain how you came up with the name Phantasma. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good story. Uh, actually, uh, the credit for this name goes to my co-founder completely. So we built Phantasma Labs by combining the technologies of simulations and virtual worlds. And Phantasma in Portuguese means something that's imaginary and virtual. So we thought this is the appropriate name to kind of, you know, depict what we are doing at the company, just basically leveraging simulations and AI uh, to build the solutions. That was the only reason there was nothing else behind, you know, coming up with this name. Okay. Introduce yourself, what you did before Phantasma. What kind of experience do you have on AI? Absolutely. So I have a very interesting detour into AI, rather, because I studied my bachelor's in mechanical engineering from India. And following that, I studied what's called as computational mechanics or simulation sciences from the Technical University of Munich. And it's basically in this program that I was introduced to a lot of different courses in software engineering, including AI, machine learning. And that's how I got into AI. And I got my hands dirty primarily by working on projects with the industry partners. For example, I initially started out by working with the MAN uh, Diesel and Turbo, a big automotive company, building AI models for them. And ever since then, I've been building AI models primarily in simulations. So I would say I would rather I rather have a non-computer science background, um, but with more application experience uh, into AI. But I'm always fascinated by how any qualified person can use AI models to build compelling solutions for enterprises. And you worked at Audi, right? I worked at uh, MAN. MAN, okay. MAN. I, I, I thought it was Audi, but it's MAN. Okay, right. What did you learn at MAN and what is your approach now for the industry sector? So in MAN, the goal was to use AI models to optimize designs. You know, as you know, MAN is a big company. They build big engines, big trucks and ship engines. And they have the challenge of, you know, understanding how can they optimize certain aspects of the engines in that go into operations. And typically, this is a very complex process because, you know, you have a number of parameters that are based on physics, that are based on, you know, mechanical laws, and you have to take all of these parameters into account to come up with optimization. And the most classical way to do this is actually to use, let's say, you know, conventional optimization methodologies where you do a linear optimization which normally takes like, you know, a couple of months to years because the number of designs that Iman has to build is like um, uh, immense. So the idea back then in 2012 was to use actually AI-based methodologies to increase the speed at which, you know, uh, you can optimize designs. Instead of, you know, waiting for like, you know, weeks or months to get optimal design, 
through AI models, we could generate new designs pretty much on a daily basis. So that is actually one of the biggest advantages of AI that we kind of saw in AI back in Iman in those days. Now, applying this to the industrial sector, the problem space is very similar, but just formulated differently. You know, If you look at a typical factory, they have a number of different parameters they have to deal with. For instance, the staffing shortage might be an issue for them on a particular day. The materials might not come on the right time. Energy prices. Energy prices, exactly. And they being a overload, offload, for example. So typically, factories have to decide pretty much very dynamically than ever before. So they want to make decisions every day as to how they can improve their factory operations. And they cannot wait for, let's say, like a couple of days to get up to solution. And that is where we brought in the AI solution to build, uh, you know, this, what we call as decision-making models for factories. There are a lot of automotive use cases on, on your website, but you want to go to the shop floor. So you take this simulation topic from, from MIN and you want to do a simulation, a process planning, uh, optimization on the shop floor. Is that the key approach? Absolutely. So we actually initially started out by providing a solutions to the automotive markets, specifically the autonomous driving markets, because they have a similar problem there. So autonomous cars, you know, they have to decide in real time basis as to what control measures they have to take. For example, if a person jaywalks in front of a car from nowhere, or there's a weird traffic sign that the car doesn't know, then you know the cars have to respond in real time. So that's the technology what we are using in the industrial sector as well, where we are helping industries to optimize operator real-time basis. But what is really, really unique and applicable for all the enterprise markets we are targeting is the core technology what we use. So we, unlike other solutions, which use a lot of data to train AI models, we use a technology called reinforcement learning, which is basically training AI models based on simulations or virtual worlds. And that gives us immense opportunities to apply our technology from one domain to another domain. So when we move from automotive to smart factories, for example, the way we do this is by building simulations of the factories. And based on that, you know, um, we train our AI models based on reinforcement So the core tech is the same, just the virtual worlds we build is different. When you talk about reinforcement learning, it's a bit of magic for many people in the industrial sector when we talk in the podcast about that. Can you explain to us how such a reinforcement project starts and what the processes look like. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. You know, when we pitched our idea initially to uh, Aldi, for example, you know, they said, man, this is not possible. But, you know, uh, we proved that this technology works. So when we mean reinforcement learning, you know, we are very conscious about uh, the use cases that we target through this approach. So we're not going to claim that we can do reinforcement learning for every possible use case within the factory domain. For example, you know, predictive maintenance or forecasting of price and so demand, all these data historical data. And, you know, we don't tackle those use cases with reinforcement learning. But what is really key, especially in this industrial domain, to apply reinforcement learning is the fact that you can only apply this technology to use cases that you can model in simulations well. A typical example of this is like assembly line. You know, this is something that you can model in simulations very well because what machines are there, what's the process time, how much time does it take for the process to go through one machine, what's the dull time. So you have pretty much all the information to, let's say, build the simulations. And for such use cases, reinforcement learning makes a lot of sense. But for other use cases, for example, as I mentioned, forecasting or predictive maintenance, you need to collect data. You need to have a lot of information before you can, you know, predict your approaches there. Sure. Can you explain 
to us how such a reinforcement project starts. When I have a factory or a shop floor and I said, Rama, you are welcome to show me how reinforcement works. Can you explain me how the project starts and what the processes look like? So a typical starting point of the project is like getting the data snapshot of the factory itself. So snapshot is typically basically, you know, saying, okay, how does this factory look like? How does assembly line look like? How many machines do they have in general? How is the staff and the operator, you know, for example, capabilities? So this is basically data what, you know, our customers have pretty much in one of the databases, for example, in the ERP tool, or, you know, in sometimes customers have it within the Excel sheets. So we use this base data or data snapshot to build our simulations. So we tell our customers, you just give us the space data. You just tell us, you know, what are the KPIs you want to optimize for, whether it's optimizing for the cost of production or reaching your volume targets or, you know, producing the cycle time. You just let us know the KPIs you want to optimize for. And you let, just let us know how your factory looks like as of today. And based on this, we go ahead and we build the simulations. We train our models. At end of the day, we ship these models to our customers. And our customers, and they can use these models pretty much on any kind of, you know, interfacing tools, what they have. For example, some customers, you know, they integrate our models into MES tools where they can just get, you know, an optimal plan automatically coming from our AI models. Or some customers just use this, uh, use our technology or the product as a standalone tool. So we will have a small interface where they say, hey, today I have a reduction in staff because 10 people are sick. Now you tell me how I should relocate my staff, for example. The customer asks the software or the application what to do now, right? That's a possibility. Exactly. Absolutely. They can do this pretty much on a daily basis. And one consistently challenging use case in the industry, what we see here is, you know, a lot of the customers, they have varying uh, orders or EDIs coming from their clients. So typically when they make the plan for the factories for the whole week, they assume that nothing changes. But if something changes, let's say on a Tuesday, the customer would come and say, hey, we want like you know, 20% more. Or when Wednesday, they say we want 30% more. Then they would want to understand, number one, if they can meet these increasing demands that's coming from their customers. And number two, if they have the enough resources to do this. And number three, if they can do this, how should the plan look? And as you can see, you know, they cannot wait for the two or three days to um, make this plan. And the state of the art in a lot of the industrial sector we see today is that, especially in the middle standard sector, is that, you know, they use really, you know, simple tools like Excel feeds, or sometimes, you know, decisions are taken by gut feelings, you know, like people are there in these factories with a lot of knowledge. So based on gut feelings, they just take decisions as to how they should plan, which is not optimal. So we believe that, you know, there's an increment room of about at least 30 to 40% in most of these factories through an AI-based tool like ours. I have one more question. How do you build this simulation? Please explain me on which database you work and what kind of things you use there, what kind of tools you use there. That's a very good question. And we use different simulation tools based on the use cases. You know, if, you, if you're talking about optimizing processes within the factory, for example, the assembly line processes or something else, then we use process simulation tools. You know, we build most of them in-house because we, you know, we have a lot of exchange with simulations from ranging from 1D to 3D simulations. So we build them in-house in and we use process simulation tools. While for more advanced simulations, like the ones you see in the automotive domain, we build 3D simulation tools on game engines. On gaming engines, okay. That's correct, yeah. So 
we have also seen, you know, in the industrial sector, such income intensive use, especially when you want to simulate how the factory in the 3D sense and want to see how the interface of the machines with humans look like, for example. So we use very simulation tools ranging from 1D tools, like process simulation tools, which is comparable to like any logic, for example, one of the popular tools out there in the market, uh, to 3D tools like, you know, Unity Game. Let's demystify a little bit this reinforcement learning approach. Can you explain me what is the next step when you have the simulation? What is happening then? The next step in the reinforcement learning, once you build a virtual world, is basically let that model or the AI agent, how you call it, to learn in a trial and error manner from this virtual world what we build. So let's take an example here. So let's say we build a simulation of a factory with you know five machines that producing one product. And now we build a simulation with the five machines and we let the AI models, number one, learn from the simulation and number two, to make decisions within the simulation itself. For example, in the simulation, when the model is learning, let's say we break down one of the machines, one of the five machines. Then the model will learn as to what is the impact of this breakdown. So how does it impact the whole process? How does this impact the KPIs, for example, the cost, the volume, and the time of production? So that's one thing that it will learn. The second thing what the model does, which is unique to reinforcement learning is, it takes actions as, as control measures. So it's going to say like, okay, in case I have three machines that break down, then, you know, let me try and fix machine two first and see if this makes uh, the situation better. And based on the action it takes, it will understand if it was a good action or a bad action. Because typically in a reinforcement learning methodology, you have what you call as a reward and a penalty. If the action that the model took, for example, fixing the right machine at the right time was a good action, then it gets a higher reward. But if it suggested to fix a wrong machine, then it will get uh, a penalty. So in that sense, the model learns by doing a lot of mistakes, all in simulations. And then at some point, let's say after a lot of iterations of learning, it notes and it understands what is the right action it has to take. This is typically how we humans learn as well, you know, like from trial and error process, exactly. And this is the same principle uh, behind building of this ethical game from Google as well. So that's how the model learns in the simulations. Okay, now I have the model. How do I integrate the model into my MES system, in my processes, in my IT infrastructure? That's a huge challenge, to be honest. Yeah, that's the biggest the challenge, I think. <laughs> But there's no real homogeneity or consistency in this in the industry at all. And to be honest, we are purely customer driven on this. So, you know, for our, for our models to work well, you know, we need some data. For example, we need somebody to tell every day that, okay, today my order demand increased by 10 bucks. So this could come from an ERP system where, you know, and in the ERP tool, they could say that, okay, I won't increase my orders by 10%. So in that case, when our tool is integrated into ERP system, we automatically pick up the data and we give the plan back into the ERP system. While on the MES side, it's more on the planning side. You know, where you know the state of the machines, you know what machines are there. And then we get this data from the MES tool in general, and then we keep this uh, optimal solution back to the MES tool. So in that, in both of these cases, you know, our customers use the similar interfaces, what they're aware of, but we just go as a plugin in the backend into these tools. So they're not really, you know, interact right with the tool, but through the interfaces they interact with, you know, among AI modeling. But, but nevertheless, 
we understand that a lot of customers out there, especially, you know, in the SME and the mid-cap segments, um, they don't even have these ERP systems, right? And that is why we have, we have built a unique UX for them to which, you know, it's just like how they use a normal software. They come into the software and just enter some values. And based on that, um, they will, you know, get the optimal solution. And that's independent of any ERP or any tools. When you talk to your customer and you need to convince this Mittelstand CEO, What are your arguments and what is the USP of Phantasma regarding two other companies doing a little bit nearly the same? Absolutely. And this is where we really stand out quite uniquely. And I believe there are just three, four companies in the whole world in similar state. So the biggest USP for our customers is that, you know, we help them to make optimal decisions with AI without the need of big data. And that is like, you know, the biggest USB. And when our customers compare our solutions with other solutions out there in the market, we are quite different because first of all, we can save a lot of money for customers because otherwise, you know, uh, if you don't use reinforcement learning based approaches, you have to ask your customer to collect data for like one year, two years, and then give you the data, which you use for training. And end of that, they get the model that they can use for optimization. So you're talking about investments of about at least, you know, in order of a few millions over two, three years, and also waiting for like, you know, uh, two years to get enough data to train models. So we, through our technology, are making this happen in less than three months. But this means that, you know, that our customers can see the return on investment in, in the term frame of, you know, two to three quarters, which is important for management to make decisions, right? When you, typically with AI solutions, the challenge is that, you know, the ROI you see is in like, you know, three years or four years because of the data collection, model building, and, you know, you don't see the ROI that quickly. But our goal is to give them the ROI in three to four quarters max. I think reinforcement learning is a little bit hyped in the moment, and I'm not fully convinced by the technology. What are the biggest obstacles for you or for your approach in this factory environment? Because I think the factory is changing a lot during one day. Can you really build a simulation on this? The biggest obstacle is, you know, still, let's say, lack of, you know, the base information we need to uh, build simulation. Sometimes we ask factories, you know, as I mentioned, the data snapshot saying uh, how this factory looks like. But sometimes they don't have this in a format that we can use. So we have to help them and sit with them to understand how does the factory look like, what machines they have. What are the parameters within these machines? One example is some, some factories don't have a good way of knocking their operators and the, and the staff, for example. So they have a very rudimentary of doing this. So a lot of this work goes into conversion of this information, which is there in a discrete way, into a way in which we can use. That's number one. And the second thing is that it's, it's really to help them that, to help them to understand that there are very small subset, subset of use cases that reinforcement learning can solve. So typically, when we go to our customers and tell them that, hey, we have an AI-based prediction and optimization tool, they kind of go into all possible use cases under the sun. For example, predictive maintenance, price forecasting is one of the use cases that's quite often maybe here now. So the struggle here is to kind of help them to narrow down to the most relevant use cases that RL can solve and also can deliver value to them. So in that sense, you know, for customer, they really don't get the big difference between RL and, you know, supervised survey methodologies, for instance. So that's why, you know, when you tell them that you can do this without big data, they are either doubting you or they believe that they're not the right customer for that. When I visit Mittelstand's mid-sized companies, 
And you mentioned, for example, Audi as a, as a partner or a customer of your solution. And I look at the production there. It's not that smart factory, multi-flexible, lot size one production we see in the newspapers and the magazines. How difficult is it to use the reinforcement approach in these kind of factories? It is indeed challenging to use any kind of AI methodology uh, for this kind of factory. Uh, but what we do is you have to make some assumptions, right? So, for example, if you think about, let's say, Audi or similar factories, you know, they have machines that are running there for 20 years. And typical lifetime of such machines are, you know, 30 years, 40 years. And they're not going to replace this machine just for the sake of getting data. They're not just going to replace this machine just for, you know, making digital. So in such scenarios, uh, the way to go about is to make some assumptions with discussions with the customer, saying that, okay, you have this whole machine that's part of this whole uh, big factory, which is super old. We don't know how this works. We don't have any data insights about this, but how about we make some assumptions? So how long does this machine work? How long does it go into maintenance? And, you know, what kind of operators are looking at these machines? So this kind of assumptions would help us to, you know, get into the first stage, which is building simulations, which is like the base for reinforcement learning. And of course, the solution, what we would recommend from the model itself, because of the assumptions, is not going to be 100% accurate. That's for sure. But still, there's so much value we can deliver to these factories, even by suggesting something that's 60%, 70% accurate, because we thought that they would end up making either no decisions or bad decisions. So that's the approach we have towards, you know, let's say, really uh, classical factories that have digitalization to a very low degree. And when we go into a smart factory, as you mentioned it, this smart factory is multi-flexible. Tomorrow I produce product one. Next day I produce product C, D, E, F, G. How adaptable is your model when the factory is changing itself during one night or one day? How adaptable is the model in these situations? That's a very good question. So first of all, we have to distinguish what is the change we're talking about here. So if you're talking about, let's say, changing the process flow of the assembly line, for example, putting in a new machine or, you know, like changing the flow of the product from A to, a to C, then this is something that the model doesn't learn automatically because this is kind of going to the area of generalization, right? It's very difficult to have a model that generalizes to any scenario that can happen within the factory. So that kind of change, you know, typically you have to do a bit of retraining, although it's, it's let's say, 20% retraining you have to do. And then the model is for you to be used. But if you're talking about changes that happen every day, which are, let's say, more or less parametrical changes, for example, machine going for breakdown, for example, or, or raw materials changing in terms of quantities, staff changing in terms of you know, number of staff available, for example. So this is something that the model is trained for. It can adapt to this in that instant, because this is not like changing the, the base of the model itself, but it's just like changing the parameters that are within this model. So typically, a lot of our, you know, customers that we work with, you know, they have their process flow or something like fixed for, for a really long time because they make this, you know, in the context of, you know, the whole product strategy and the factory setting up strategy. But what is changing in between pretty much on a daily basis or even on a weekly basis sometimes is, is saying, okay, I have shortage of raw materials, my buffer is depleting or my staff is constrained. So that's the, those kind of changes we can take in the instantaneous form. Rama, how long does it take from the start point from the project to the model on my shop floor? Rated question. So a lot of different timelines here, depending on the customer. But I would say anywhere between three months to six months is the timeline that we have seen uh, with, the, with the projects. 
the factors included here are, you know, the complexity of the factory itself, like how many processes, how many variables are included within this. For some factories, you know, they are like saying, look, our goal is to just reach the volume targets that we have from our clients at any cost. But for other factories, they have a multi-objective optimization problem. They want to reach the volume targets, but they want to keep the energy costs low. They want to keep the emissions low. Um, they want to reduce the co cost of production in itself. So for such use cases, we need a bit more training time because this contracting objectives. And one more question. What does a client need to bring to the table in order to start? When I'm a Mittelstand CEO coming to you to Berlin, what do I need? First of all, they need to tell us what's the vision they have. What are they trying to achieve with this technology? So you are the magician then. <laughs> At least we can help them to, you know, <laughs> go, go ahead and we get more, you know, smart in, in their decision. So we, we sit with them and we understand, okay, what are the KPIs that you want to improve in the next uh, two to three quarters? And based on that, we identify, let's say, the most challenging use case. So for some factories, it's like very EDIs for one of the products that they're not able to handle on a daily basis. That's one use case. Other factors, it's maintenance planning, for example. And once we decide on the use case and uh, what KPIs they want to improve, we ask them for, let's say, a basic set of information. That's the data snapshot saying, okay, just give us information on your factories as of today. And then you can understand how is their IT infrastructure. For example, uh, if they have ERP tools and use tools, if not, how else would they refer to use of And that's the way we go ahead, we build the models, we ship the models, and then we show them an order of implementing the KPIs through which you know, they can already see that the model is trying to bring the smart decisions and saving cost or whatever KPI they have. So what are the next steps for you and your company in the next, I think, three or four months. You have to change your website, I think, because there are also <laughs> a lot of automotive use cases. Absolutely. But what are the technical next steps? So the technical next steps is to really, really building something that a lot of customers can use at scale. So this is the giant with an AI, right? I mean, you could build something that's so unique to one customer, but it, it doesn't apply to the customer. But our goal is to take this technology to all the customers in the SME and the mid-cap segment, especially in Germany. And this means that we need to sit with a lot of these customers, understand what is the repeating use case among all these customers, how do they intend to use these models and you know build a product that they can use pretty much in a scalable way. And this also goes into the direction of understanding from the customers, okay, what are the most important uh, pressing points or challenges? and how we can include these in the AI models and so that you know the models can help them solve these challenges. So the vision what we have is that we want to reach out to, let's say, a number of stand and SME or even mid-cap companies in the next few weeks and months and you know show them the potential of the model, show them that you know they can achieve optimal solutions with AI, even if they don't have the fully digital infrastructure that would be needed for other AI methodologies. Um, so to show them that this is possible, this is feasible, and this is something that's relevant for them as of today. And that is the biggest goal we have. Rama, I wish you a lot of success, much success for your approaches in the next months. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much and greetings to Berlin. Thank you so much, Robert, for having me. I'm looking forward to engaging with a lot of industry leaders in this domain. And our goal is to really, really make efficient factories for the whole world. Thank you, Rama. Thank you.